Hello everyone, welcome to the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. This is your host, Randy Kim. I am incredibly excited to bring on my first ever guest to the podcast. His name is Etzquen Lewis Wong. Several months ago, my good friend and collaborator Ada Chang messaged me out of the blue and sent me a flyer about an event that he was participating in through her friend, Laura Scruggs. We both didn't know who he was. So I decided to do my detective work. I found him on Instagram and watched several clips of his music that he recorded. I remembered feeling moved by his music and artistry. We would later meet up for lunch and talk. One of the first things he brought up was his role being a caregiver to his mother. This was what immediately bonded both of us because I too am a caregiver of my mother. Both of our mothers suffered near-fatal strokes at nearly the same time, and we were left to take on the responsibility of helping them in their recovery while reflecting back on the emotional toll it took to do so. We chatted extensively on the podcast about his upbringing, being mixed Asian American, his creative process in his music as a singer-songwriter and musician, and his responsibility as a caregiver to his mother after her life-threatening ordeal at the age of 17. It was such a joy talking with him, and I am super grateful for his candidness in sharing his experiences. I hope you enjoy this episode. My name is Randy Kim, and so I'm here with my good friend, Etzcorn Lewis Wong. So how are you, Etzcorn? Hello. Hey, I'm good. How's it going, everybody? <laughs> so I'm very curious, uh, before we uh, begin... I'm very curious. So, Etzcorn is your stage name? Yeah, uh, Etzcorn Wong is my stage name. Um, although I haven't officially debuted yet, I haven't really released anything under my stage name, and I, I've really only done like a minimal amount of uh, like branding social media efforts. So, really, the the only thing that really gives uh, like legitimacy to it being my stage name for the moment is uh the fact that i've played a couple of shows is that scorn wong now uh i've played like three or four shows under under the stage name at scorn wong so um, i'm out of curiosity so where did the name at scorn uh come into play and uh, how did you come up with that name and why is that name very important to you as a performer um so at scorn is my last name uh at scorn is the my dad's surname so um like on my birth certificate my full name is lewis Wong Etzcorn. Um, and uh, the, the way my, my parents actually named me was they, they constructed my first or my first middle and last name out of uh, surnames of my family. Uh, so Lewis was my mother or my grandmother on my dad's side's maiden name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wong was my, my mom's maiden name. And then Etzcorn's my dad's last name. Um, so my full name is three surnames. I chose Etzcorn Wong because um, I guess I was always kind of at a loss for whether or not, um, whether or not I wanted to go as, you know, Lewis Edscorn or Lewis Wong. Um, and I wanted to be able to kind of keep like all of that, like family heritage and identity packed into the name. Um, so then it like struck me that I didn't have to perform as Lewis at all. Uh, I could just use my my last and middle name and so i i didn't want to perform as wong etzcorn it didn't have like as good of a flow to it so i just decided to flip it and do like uh, a lot of asian folks do and, and put their their last name first ah uh, yes that is very true because uh i know when i was living in korea for a time being uh you would say like instead of going with the first name uh, first and the last name second, it was switched around. So yeah, and that's very uh, interesting. And so you were kind of talking about yourself here, uh, talking about your background. So I was wondering if you can give us an introduction of who you are and uh, what led you into music. Yeah, um, I so I'm uh, I'm 25. Uh, I, I was born and raised in Chicago. I I grew up in Rogers Park. Uh, I went to CPS schools. Uh, for my entire life and um, went to college at the University of Illinois. I, I graduated a couple of years ago and uh, yeah, I, I really love my family and friends uh, and uh, 
making making stuff whether that's music or uh or t-shirts or whatever i kind of feel like um what led me to music is i'd, I'd say my my parents uh they they kind of they they just forcefully kind of enrolled me in piano when i was <laughs> that's <laughs> such that is such a typical stereotypical super stereotypical yeah like completely stereotypical they're, they're just like oh yeah you're doing this now uh and i was like fuck i don't want to like i, don't, I really did don't they, like did they uh, realize that you were talented at playing a piano or did they just felt like you know what i don't know what he's good at so we're gonna make sure that i i'm not sure actually i think they threw me in i think they could see that i i was quick at picking up stuff in general like i, I was i was pretty good at just like learning new things um but i don't i don't think they like noticed any like sort of like particular uh like ability in music or anything they're just like we're gonna put our kid in piano because that's what you're supposed to do to your kid is you're supposed to put them in piano um and so they did i, I was i think i started when i was seven or eight and 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 i hated it i i truly hated it with all my soul um i why never did, why I did never you hate it yeah why did you end up hating the piano I, I mean, I guess as a kid, all I really wanted to do was like play video games and like run around with my older cousins and friends and like watch TV and and like goof off. I was like such a, I was like a pretty, uh, I had a hard time respecting authority as a kid. Um, and to me, just like having a piano teacher where I had this structure and 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 had to abide by these rules. And forms and postures uh, and like regimens. To me, that just felt like unnecessary authority being imposed on me and unnecessary structure. And I, I didn't, I don't know. I just, I didn't really mesh well with that as a kid. Um, and I, I, uh, I kind of rebelled against it. I, I just never practiced, and and uh, I, I always ended up just like learning my songs like. The day of my lesson, like before I'd go into the lesson, I just learned the song and practice it like a bunch of times, and then go in, uh, and then like I'd be able to play it like fairly well, like not not as though I'd been practicing it all week, but of course I'd always lie and say, yeah, I've been practicing all week. So the teacher would always just be like, okay, he's just a, I guess he's just like a average student. Um, <laughs> but yeah, little little did she know, I, I practiced it for like twenty minutes before the lesson, and that's it. Oh wow. Um, but yeah, uh, my first teacher was actually pretty cool um, because she was really chill. Uh, back in the day when the game, the computer game, The Sims was popular, she was like obsessed with The Sims. Uh, and like, so was my older cousin who was also put in piano with me at the time. Uh, and so she would just like talk to me about The Sims, which is weird. And she, she like wouldn't like, she, she wasn't really that uh, serious of a teacher. Um, but I think she like left, she left like the place that I took lessons at, like uh, I think like a, a month or two in to me taking lessons there. Um, and then they switched me over to a different teacher, uh, Miss Rosette. And Miss Rosette was this like 75 year old woman who uh, had like 50 cats at home and her, her like sweatpants were always like covered in cat fur. And I, I'm, I'm allergic to cats, so I'd just be sneezing and, like, hating it. And she was really strict and really, like, needed every student to sit up really straight uh, and play with, like, the perfect arches in their fingertips. Um, and, yeah, I just, like, really, like, didn't mesh well with her. Um, yeah. I can imagine that was, like, your worst nightmare. That is, you're allergic to cats, you're sneezing, you have to be disciplined which is uh which is in contrast to the free-spirited child that you uh, were back then and when did it uh, when did it uh happen for you that piano playing became more acceptable to you um so when i uh when i when i started going to junior high school um at some point i just became so busy with my workload that I, I was able to convince my parents to let me drop piano. Up until then, I'd literally ask them every single week, can I quit piano, can I quit piano? And they just wouldn't let me. Um, but finally, I think it was in like seventh grade going on eighth grade or something like that. I, I was, I, I, I asked them, I was like, I'm just too busy to like really give this the time. Can I 
please finally quit piano. And they let me quit piano. Um, and like pretty much like directly after I was able to finally quit piano, I, I started like messing around with uh, like the blues scale. Um, and like I, I learned that if you like combined like notes in a certain way, it would, it, it would sound like different. It wouldn't sound like the classical stuff that I'd been playing. Um, and like there had been a couple of songs that like uh, like my previous teacher Miss Rosette had introduced to me kind of as like wild card songs like kind of like oh this is like a fun like different song that we'll play and like those were always like either ragtime like uh, like Scott Joplin or, yeah. or songs and we didn't get to play many of them like we do it every now and then <clears throat> as like a treat to me um, but yeah after I quit piano I kind of went back to like one of the blues songs we played and was like oh why do these notes work so well. And I kind of started experiment with just like combining them in new ways, and and I like started like figuring out chords that I could play, and I, I started improvising really, um, like up until then I, I would kind of come up with little melodies and stuff, but I never really like sat down and like explored what that would be to like sit down and just try to improvise. Uh, but after I quit piano and I I didn't have the structure, that's when I really started to improvise, um, and like really kind of like learned how to express myself and, and, and like play things that that felt really cool to me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I started doing that and uh, I did that for, I don't know, I think like six months or a year. And then I like realized that I really liked piano at that point because I, I just like couldn't stop like playing and messing around and writing my own little tunes. Um, and that's when I uh, like found this uh, this dude online um, who taught like jazz and blues uh, piano, and I, I started taking taking lessons with him for like a year, um, and uh, yeah, that that was just like I was I was a lot more 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 suited for that. But even that, like even that, felt like like I still didn't really understand the value of practice, and like it still felt a little structured to me. And I was still like trying to balance things in high school, and I, I mostly just wanted to like hang out with my friends or whatever what have you. Um, and so like, even when I, when I found this guy that was kind of like right up my alley, uh, I, I still didn't really like fully embrace like all the, all the structure he was putting on it. Um, so I, I was only really with him for a year or so. Um, and then in high school, I, I, I joined a band. I played keyboard in a band. It was like a classic rock band. We played like a lot of like hippie music basically. Um, and, uh, that was really cool. That, that was like. That was kind of like uh, it became this thing where music wasn't like it. It didn't really have to be like uh, I don't, it. It could be. It could be a lot more fun, I guess. It, to to us, really, it was just like an ex an excuse to hang out after high school, you know, at at our friend's place, and we'd just do whatever we wanted. We'd practice sometimes, but sometimes we'd just have band practice and then not practice at all and just shoot the shit. Uh, um, yeah. And also, when you uh, were performing through high school, what was your uh, uh, upbringing like? As, well, you were sharing your upbringing with uh, your parents to some extent, you know, with your parents uh, putting you into uh, piano lessons. But as far as uh, how you grew up and also uh, living in Rogers Park, which is up in the Chicago Northside neighborhood, what what are your experiences do you recall growing up and did it have any bearing in the kind of music that you wanted to create eventually? Um, that's a good question. Uh, my experience was really kind of, it was a good experience really. Um, I, uh, I, spent, I spent most of the days at, at my grandparents' house um, with all of my cousins. And that, that was kind of like the hub for the whole family because every, everybody's parents worked. So uh, after school, we would just all be dropped off at our grandparents' house. Um, and so we, we would all just be there. I have a huge family. Um, so it, it would just be like, like me and like five, six, seven other cousins just at, at my grandma's house after school. Um, and yeah, it, my, I, think, I think I was really lucky in that my childhood was a really positive one. Um, there wasn't like, that much uh, stress and negativity, um, and uh, 
it, it was really eclectic. Uh, like being at my grandparents' house and and like being raised as as a Cantonese kid and like speak, speaking like a separate language there uh, than I than I spoke at school, um, and just like kind of like learning that world, um, but then also like going to school or, or when I when I was at home talking with my dad speaking English. Um, I think that was kind of like a like a really like uh, I don't know just like a really really eclectic sort of um, upbringing for me. I was actually very curious about like uh, your experiences being in Rogers Park because I used to live in Rogers Park for a couple of years from 2013 to 2017, and what I love about Rogers Park as an adult was being by the lake. Um, I would live like a block away on Prep. Uh, on Pratt Boulevard, and I found Rogers Park to be very diverse. It was uh, also also in between gentrification because you have Loyola University, like not yeah. too far away from there. But then in other communities, like in Howard Street or Jarvis, um, there were different uh, ethnic communities that were uh, that were working class that were living there. And so I'm I'm very curious to know your experiences with Rogers Park. And I know you touched upon your family's uh, dynamics there and the closeness that you had having family members around there and, and how that shaped up your childhood. But I'm just very curious to know about your own experiences with that community. Yeah, uh, Rogers Park is one of the most like diverse places I've ever been to in my life. Um, as a kid, I didn't realize really how not diverse the world was. Um, because like in my neighborhood and in my schools, it, it was always extremely diverse. Um, so in that sense, Rogers Park really kind of shaped like uh, just like my, my views on like racial identity. Um, like just being in a place and having so many different types of people there and it, it being it feeling natural um, and, and me kind of carrying that with me into adulthood, I think is like a huge part of, of who I am. Um, in terms of uh, what was the uh, second part of the question? Um, I was just kind of thinking for a moment here, but in terms of how I think you've, I think you definitely answered uh, the part where how Rogers Park affected the way you grew uh, your upbringing, right? Yeah. And so, you know, Rogers Park being so diverse. Uh, can you imagine, like, maybe maybe this is a different question. Can you imagine what life would have been like had you been living in a community that's not so diverse? And how do you think that might have impacted your upbringing? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, like, I kind of felt glimpses of that when I'd go to places that weren't so diverse and realize, oh, this this feels weird, you know? Uh, like, um, when, I, when I went to college, I guess is the big one. It, it was, I mean, I went to the, I went to the University of Illinois <laughs> Even that school is pretty diverse, um, but it, it definitely wasn't as diverse as, as Chicago. Um, and just kind of feeling that uh, and feeling like, uh, I don't know, just, just feeling out, out of my comfort zone, at least racially. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's something that um, because, because I grew up in a neighborhood that kind of naturalized diversity, um, I, I really like... I really would be afraid to see who I would be if I grew up in a neighborhood that naturalized like a sort of like racial discomfort in me, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I kind of felt that like when, when, uh, when I would visit, uh, when I would visit my dad's side of the family, uh, in, in Kentucky and Southern Ohio, um, it, it, it was definitely not Rogers Park. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, I usually was like the only, like, or me and my sister and my mom, we were usually the only non-white people there. Uh, and and it, it was definitely a weird feeling. Uh, had I grown up in that, I, I definitely wouldn't have been the same person. When you grew, when you visited your dad's side of the family in other parts of the Midwest, what were your experiences of racial discomfort that made you feel okay, this does not feel right to me. You know, it, it was, I think, like a very much, like, so subconscious type thing. Um, because, like, my dad's family is, they're, 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 I mean, they're family, and they're all just amazing, like, 
really warm people and they, they only treated me and my family with love uh, and care and they, they were just nothing but the warmest to us. Um, but I think kind of like as I grew older, especially, I couldn't help but realize like, oh yeah, I, I'm so different. I, I'm, we're, we're Asian, you know? Um, and I couldn't help but notice that like my mom kind of like sat aside from all the other all, like all the other women in the family, you know, like no, nobody could quite relate uh, and or nobody could quite talk to her. I mean, people would talk to her and be nice to her and stuff, but the conversation was always kind of short. Uh, and I think like kind of feeling that and feeling like I couldn't fully relate or that I felt just different in this way, uh, I, I think gave me discomfort despite how warm and, and just like and, and, and compassionate they all were to me. Like I, I couldn't kind of escape this like subconscious discomfort. Mm. And also, um, I know the, and also uh, in the topic of, um, and also in the topic of your family, you mentioned and actually when we first met, uh, it was actually through Ada Chang who uh, brought us both here because you had just done a performance to one of our good friends, Laura Scruggs. Yeah. And so I remembered uh, wanting to connect with you because I saw your Instagram, you play music. So I was very intrigued by it. And one of the first things that we talked about was our parents. And um, my family is both Vietnamese and Cambodian. My mom's side of the family is Vietnamese. And you share your mom's experience, you know, being uh, Chinese growing up in Vietnam and I remembered you talking about caregiving for your mother and to me uh, as a person who's also been a caregiver to my parents specifically with my mother for the past seven and a half years it was something that I have a hard time talking about at times because when you think about the near um the near the near loss it hits you very hard and it's hard to it traumatizes it traumatized me uh to an extent where when i have to relive those particular moments when i found out about my mom's stroke which happened on the day that i left uh korea and i was staying in hong kong overnight to get the emergency news from my brother that she was in the hospital in the emergency room so to get that when you're several thousands of miles away in the middle of the night yeah no, that's was, awesome. was jolting right and so yeah. i was on a plane ride from hong kong to chicago a non-stop flight it was about a good 13 hours and this was before you can get into your wi-fi so yeah. i had no idea what was going to happen between from the time that i left hong kong to my arrival at o'hare airport so Luckily, my mom survived the stroke and she was in the intensive care unit. And for me to come back home to it as my homecoming was very difficult to process. And it would later change the way I would settle down being here in Illinois. Yeah. So I know that you shared your experience and I know that this is not an easy area to, uh, to go into, but I was hoping that uh, maybe you could shed some light about your own experiences, uh, especially when it came at a time when you yourself were about to uh, graduate high school. And when my mom had her stroke, I was in my late 20s. But I think the only similarity was that we were both trying to figure ourselves out coming back. Yeah. And, um, and what is our life and where, what is our life going to look like moving forward so yeah i'm just very curious if you can shed some light on that yeah i mean first off thanks for talking about your situation i i definitely know it's a hard thing to talk about um i could only imagine how helpless you must have felt being on the other side of the world while it all unfolded um for me uh i i was in chicago i, w I was actually out um, it was my senior year in high school, so I would have been 17, and I was out at a party. It was, I think, like the day before Halloween, and it was kind of like a, it was like a Halloween party, but nobody was in costumes, and we were just at this 
dude's That's house. <laughs> <laughs> we were at, it was just the weekend. We were at this dude's house. We, we weren't really friends with this dude, but we were just at his house. And I don't know, we, we were just drinking. We we're just high school kids. Um, Underage drinking. <laughs> Be the rebel that you are. <laughs> <laughs> not, not even. Um, I, I don't even think I drank much. I, we were just like <laughs> hanging around and pretending to drink, basically. Uh, and we, uh, we left there and my, my friend was giving me a ride home. And uh, he was also giving another friend a ride home. And as we pulled up to the friend that he was dropping off first, uh, I, got, I got a text message from my dad saying that my mom had a uh, ruptured aneurysm mm. in the left part of her brain mm. and uh, was in the hospital awaiting like emergency surgery. And there was a really good chance she wouldn't make it. Uh, and yeah, I remember I, I was, I was just, I, I, I literally like got out of the car and just like walked into an alley and fell to my knees and I just felt like so completely numb and like just couldn't like process that like at all. Like it was just impossible to process. Like mm-hmm. I was trying to like shove the text message into my brain, but like there was just no boxes in my brain that could like accommodate that text message. So I just dropped to my knees and I just didn't say anything. Uh, and uh, yeah, my, my friends came over and were like worried as fuck and were like, what was happening? And, and I, I like managed to tell them somehow. I don't, I don't remember what I said. And they like, they honestly didn't say anything either. I don't think they could process it. And, uh, my friend just gave me a ride home. And I, I think it was like, like a largely silent car ride. And uh yeah, I remember I got out of the car and I just like went up to my room and I, I rolled a blunt, uh, like a really fat blunt. This was like the start of my like strange abusive relationship with weed uh, back in my like late high school slash early college days. And uh, yeah, I rolled like a super fat blunt and called one of my best friends, Martin Kim, and uh just like talk to him on the phone. I think I might've mentioned it to him that it had happened, but we talked about like everything else, but like, just because I, like, I just wanted to talk about something else. I remember we were like freestyle rapping together on the phone. Cause that's what you used to do in high school is just freestyle rap. And so he was like on the phone beatboxing and I was on the phone rapping. Uh, and like, I was just like smoking like a bunch of weed and like, just trying to like figure out how to process this news Meanwhile, I'm kind of just like waiting to hear more from my dad who's in the hospital. Um, and I like I, I wasn't sure whether I should go uh, or whether I should wait or I should stay home. I ended up staying home that night uh, because I had to like hold it, hold down the fort. Uh, and, and like we didn't know what was happening. And then I, I got up early the next day and my mom was still awaiting like all sorts of procedures. So we were just like basically in the hospital forever, it seemed. Um, and yeah, like the whole time we like weren't sure what was happening or whether she'd live or anything. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it turned out she survived the aneurysm, but she was kind of just like, well, she she was unconscious, she was in a coma for for uh, the next day, and then the next day after that, and then the day after that, and it kind of just turned into this like she was just unconscious for like seven or eight months, and that. Oh like, my gosh. <laughs> And then we just like, we just had to like, <laughs> just like deal with it. <laughs> I think, I think like, okay, because I can only imagine. I mean, I don't know what that's like to have a loved one go through this purgatory that you and your family were held hostage in for months. And what was your family's, you know, your family's uh way of coping through, or ha- or the way they were handling this processing through this this life ordeal i i honestly don't like i think like i don't i don't i don't think we really did process it i mean like my my dad was in the hospital every single day mm-hmm. every single day he'd get off work and go directly to the hospital and be there until like midnight or 1am then he'd just come home 
sleep and rinse and repeat, go to work the next day. Oh. Literally just by her bedside like all night, every single day for like for months. Um, I, I, I kind of had like the blessing that I, I was pretty busy in school. It was like my first semester of senior year and uh, I was on the swim team. And so like the swim season started after that. And like there, there were like just constant practices. Uh, we had like practice in the morning where we had to be like in the pool by like uh, like some crate like 6 a.m. or some shit like before school we'd have like a two-hour practice and then we'd go to school and then after school we'd have another two-hour practice um so and then after that I'd have to do homework and stuff so like I I was lucky that I had so much to keep me busy um that like I I kind of was able to not process my mom being in the hospital uh I actually didn't like I I I had a hard time getting myself to visit her because I just felt so bad and I, I felt so helpless and I, I, I didn't feel like I was making an impact by being there and it just made me so anxious uh, and, and sad that I like had a really hard time being there. So it was, for me, it was kind of convenient for the coping process that I was so busy uh, with all this other stuff, you know, college applications on top of all that, uh, that, that I kind of had all that to distract me from it. Um, and then I don't, I don't know about my little sister. I mean, she was just, uh, if I was 17, she would have been 13 at the time. So wow. she was just like finishing eighth grade. Um, and like, I honestly, like, I, I don't know what she did. I, I don't, I don't think she could either quite, I don't think she could quite com- comprehend it either. Yeah. I, I cannot, um, it, it's hard to fathom, you know, being at that age or any age to deal with the person who's been taking care of you, you know, you're up until that point and all of a sudden what happens to me, what happens to my sister, what happens to my dad? And I wonder um, during the seven, eight months, you know, with your mom being in a coma, was there a point? And I know, forgive me if I, you know, ask this question. Oh no, it's cool. Would, was there a point where you were ready to let go and allow your mom to transition um you mean like uh into death right i mean like the idea of accepting that she may not ever live oh yeah i mean like honestly i think uh, that's a good question i know uh, about like i think it was about two months into her coma she had been doing better and she had started kind of like twitching awake and they're like her vitals were coming back and everything was normalizing again and uh, I uh, got a call from my dad, and he was at the hospital or whatever. And what had happened was uh, the tube, the oxygen tube that was going into her head, uh, or, or or that was going into her in, or into her throat, they had to put a breathing tube in her throat. So the the oxygen tube, the oxygen tube that was going into her throat, for whatever reason, they couldn't figure it out. It it was blocked, and it, it stopped working for a couple of minutes. So she, she was just without oxygen for a couple of minutes. Oh my goodness. This was like two, like, this was like two months into the, into her healing process. And she's still unconscious at this point, but she's kind of finally starting to waken. And, uh, like it, it, it basically set her back. Like it, it, it basically like, like it, it put her back at square one. Um, and, and I remember my dad like told me and he, he like, I think he really believed it. He was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if she's going to make it. Um, and yeah, I think that was like the closest I'd come to accepting it. Uh, like that, that really fucked me up. Um, I remember I was on, I was on my way to going to, to go hang out with some friends when he told me that. And like, I just, I was in the car, I got in the car and I kind of just like sat in the car, like in silence while I like, while I didn't process it. And kind of just like stewed in that and then i just like left and went to go hang out with my friends i don't think i even mentioned it to them um but yeah i think like that was the closest i came to accepting it uh that that was like that that was definitely really tough and and i think one of the things that broke my heart the most was seeing my dad have to try and tell me that uh, mm-hmm. like seeing him have to get those words out and then he 
and, and, and like how much he was struggling to deal with the whole situation. Oh. And uh, also, the good news was that seven, eight months later, you were ready to graduate high school, and then your mother came out of her coma. I was wondering if you could share that particular moment, because it could not have come at a very, uh, very pivotal time in your life, but also in your families. I mean, you being the oldest, 18 years old, or about to be 18, going to college, and your mom finally gets to see you walk. So I was wondering if you can share that, uh, share that experience. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, so she was basically like, so she didn't really just like snap out of her coma one day. It was more kind of like a gradual thing. So she went into the hospital in late October of, uh, it would have been 2011. Um, and then by, by like March, April, that's kind of when she like started kind of like, like waking up like gradually and she would do things like you would be sitting beside her bed and she, she would squeeze your hand while you held her hand. Uh, or sometimes she would just open her eyes for like a couple, like for, for like a couple, like a minute or something and then go back to sleep. And like. That those were kind of like the initial signs, or she would she would kind of be like, like mumbling in her sleep, or or like just like like, you could see she was uncomfortable and kind of like tossing around a little bit. Yeah, uh, and that that was kind of like the initial stuff. That was more like in like March or April of 2012. The whole thing with the breathing tube, I think that was in like January, January or December. Um, but yeah, and then she like as she kind of like progressed past like March, April, those occurrences kind of started happening more and more often. And she, you know, she'd open her eyes for a little longer or she'd squeeze her hand a little harder. And like gradually she, she became, she like started waking up. Um, she was out of ICU by, by this point. She just, I think she was just in like a, like a regular bed. Um, and uh, at some point she became like, I think, conscious enough that they transferred her over to like like a rehabilitation like center for for like a month and she was pretty much just in the bed the entire time and she would she she slept almost all day like she was rarely conscious but um she would wake up for like small amounts of time and during those time uh or during that time they like the 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 nurses would kind of try and like stimulate her brain in different ways so like uh talking to her, asking her questions, getting her to nod yes or no, and et cetera. Um, and so she was there for about, uh, I'd say about a month, or a month and a half or something like that. And yeah, around, I think it was like literally just days before I graduated or before I had my graduation, um, she, she had gotten to the point where she was conscious at least for like, I don't know, like like 20% of the day or something like that mm -hmm. uh, to the point where she was like able to nod and like speak a little bit and, and like gesture with her hands. Um, and she got to the point where she was all right to come back home. Um, and yeah, like literally like one of the first things she did upon coming back home is we, she was in a wheelchair. She was pretty much entirely like entirely dependent, dependent. Uh, she, she couldn't really like get around. We had to push her around in a wheelchair and she couldn't like sit up in bed on her own. Um, she could, she could barely eat, uh, she, her breathing tube, like kind of like fucked up her voice. So she had a really hard time talking. Even now her voice is different than it was. Um, and, uh, yeah, she, she, uh, she, she, she came a long way. Um, and so, I don't know, I guess graduation, when I look back on it and I talk about it as being like, oh, she came back and then went to my graduation, it like seems like it was this like golden moment or something. But to be honest, I, I was kind of numb at graduation. I, I was, I honestly just wanted to get it over with. I was just like, this is stupid. I wish this was over. Like, one of my I best- I feel that way about high school too. <laughs> 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 I was like that same way. I think I went to like my community college like a, like a week after high school because I was so over it by that point. <laughs> but yeah, and um, I don't mean to interrupt. No. Oh, no, it's cool. It's but, cool. Yeah, I, 
when you were going through this process, I, I'm thinking to myself, you know, just hearing your story, like for the past year, you were so mentally exhausted and you were trying to find ways to process to cope with something that was going to forever change your life. So I, I can imagine by the time you got to graduation, you were already exhausted from so much that has happened and that you need that whole senior year, that experience to be behind you. It's funny because I felt like I, now looking back, I realized that I felt exhausted, but it's funny because at the moment I didn't have really like the emotional awareness to realize that and to realize that I, I had, I was entitled to feeling exhausted. Mm -hmm. I remember I would miss class, right? And I would like, like, I remember I emailed this one teacher uh, and I like, I I missed like a, I skipped class (laughs) and I missed like a test or a quiz or some shit. And I emailed her asking her to make it up. And I, I remember emailing her and saying, could I make up the quiz? Uh, there's some, like, I, my family situation is really unstable right now. There's a lot going on at home. Uh, sorry that I, like, missed class that day. Whatever. And, and to me, like, I felt, like, in sending that email, like, I couldn't say, like, my mom... <laughs> My mom had a stroke. Like I did, I felt that I couldn't say that because I didn't want her to think that I was trying to like use some sob story or something in order to like get out of taking the test. Like I felt like I wasn't entitled to feeling exhausted or feeling like like my world had just been like thrown into complete chaos. Uh, and so like I like in sending that email, and I, I think like that's kind of like a good representative of a lot of the stuff I was feeling at the time, like. I, I didn't feel as though I could give full credit to my situation. Like, I didn't feel like I could say, like, oh, yeah, I'm really struggling right now with this, and this is what I need. Instead, I kind of downplayed it, like, oh, stuff's, mm-hmm. stuff's weird at home right now. Could I maybe retake the quiz, you know, instead of being like, oh, yeah, so my mom has been in a coma for the last, like, four months, uh, and, like, I haven't really been able to deal with coming to school. Do you think I could take the quiz again? Like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I don't know, just like processing, like, like what, like what I was going through or, or like what, what I was going through versus like in the moment, how, like what I felt I was entitled to go through. Like I oftentimes didn't want to talk to people about it because I didn't want them to think that like they had to like feel sorry for me or something. I don't know. It was just weird. So I just didn't really talk about it. Yeah, same with your teachers and high school counselors, I presume, as well. I don't think a sing like, all my friends knew, because, like, I told, like, one or two people, and then they told, like, they told another, like, so, like, it kind of just spread. But other than that, I think I told, like, two people about it. Mm. And not, like, not a single teacher knew about it. No counselors knew about it. Mm. Of course, my whole family knew about it, and then a lot, a lot of my friends knew about it. And I mean, they were so sweet. Like people would ask me how my mom was doing and I, yeah. I'd kind of just be like, oh, she's doing, she's getting better slowly. And like, yeah. not really like, and I would feel that they were kind of uncomfortable. So I'd change the subject. Mm-hmm. So like moving forward, like the last several years since your mom's uh, aneurysm, how is your mom doing now? And also what has your role been with the family in the last <laughs> several years? Because I know that you, we're ready to enter college. You, you're still trying to find yourself as a young adult, but at the same time, even though your dad was also taking care of your mom, there was this added responsibility that now I also have to take care of, of my mom as well. What was going through? Uh, what was going through the process of eventually being a caregiver? It was. Well, it was a lot, really. Uh, when my mom came home, I graduated, then I was home for the summer, and then I went to college immediately after that. And so my, like, my foray into caregiving was like long-distance caregiving for the most part. Uh, and it, there, there was definitely a lot of guilt there for me. Mm. Like, I, I mean, I felt like, yes, I had to go to college. That's what my parents wanted. That's, that's what I ostensibly wanted, at least. And 
So I felt that I had to see that through. But then at the same time, uh, I like couldn't be around during like the like the the like the beginning of this this whole this whole journey that we had just started on. Um, and I couldn't be around my mom's rehabilitation process as much as I wanted to be. Um, so I think I kind of like took the role of like, I don't know, of like director, um, because I, I had a lot of perspective and a lot of ideas and, and a lot of like, a lot of ambition. And so when I did come home or when I did check up on my family and like via phone call or text or whatever, uh, it, it, I, I felt like I was always the one that was kind of trying to assess our situation and assess the system in place and assess all the things that we were doing really well, um, but then all the all the shortcomings and how we were how we were dealing with things. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I was the one that was kind of like, oh, do you know this thing that we do? We should try and do that differently, you know, like um, and, and I think like <clears throat> now I feel kind of bad because I think I like especially my dad, I think I might have rubbed him the wrong way a little bit because like oftentimes my ideas came off as critical uh, or like overly critical to the way he was giving care. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of internal battles. I mean, it's not just taking care of a loved one who needs uh, additional help, but also the dynamics uh, that come into play with how that care is being, uh, how that care is being carried out and i know that from my brothers and i we fought i think the first year or two we butted heads because there were a lot of situations like um from disability knowing what her rights are disability medicare issues um and finances and also really making sure that she's in a situation that she uh felt safe in and also it didn't help that my dad was going through my his own mental health issues um yeah. that also further eroded uh or, that further eroded him so yes. my brothers and i were at a critical point where we were not agreeing for the first two years and it, it took time it took a lot of trust it took a lot of transparency and and my brothers and I were never that close before my mom's stroke and so I think a lot of our own history came into play you know a lot of our distrust of each other just manifested itself in those moments but it took time and I think you were sharing just right now about your dad of how those moments you know your dad was there at the hospital every single day while you weren't able to, but you also have more access to the knowledge of resources and, and technology and being kept aware of what ways can benefit your mom. So there's, there's a lot of battles that can be fought over this and it's, it's painful to go through that. And um, yeah, so I just kind of wanted to chime in there. Yeah. Oh, no, I really relate to what you just said. I, I mean, everybody feels like their own, their own sense of obligation and pressure and urgency in giving care and, and trying to make the situation better. Uh, whether me and my dad or you and your brothers. And I think it can be just so like frustrating and triggering when like, I feel this immense pressure to help out and give care and the way somebody else is giving care is in direct conflict with the way that I see it's important to give care, you know? Yeah. And I think another um, experience that I've learned or lessons that, that I've also learned from others is that at the end of the day, when we are so immersed in trying to care for our loved ones, what does the loved one who's affected the most want? What is their wish? What, what, do they, uh, <laughs> what do they value? What do they want for their quality of life? And I think that is something that's often missing because we try to rescue, we try to do everything we can to do our part, um, to do our part to, to make it right. But we often forget the person whose uh, agency has not been, um, whose agency has been 
being compromised because they're not able to make those decisions or they're not able to verbalize it. So, it, so yeah. we so we end up trying to guess or double guess what we think it is, and sometimes we miss out on that opportunity. And um, luckily for my mom, she's much better where she can verbalize her needs. And even though she's physically compromised to some extent. But she's very independent. Um, she can still cook. She can still tell me what to do, even when I don't ask her to t- for her input. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm very curious to see, like, now um, moving back, like, moving forward, how is your mom in terms of how far has she come along since uh, oh, her ha- a hospital stay? She's doing great. She's come along so far. She's... Oh. She is a firecracker of a woman. Uh, That's awesome. She's probably the most stubborn person I've ever met. And, no, she's definitely the most stubborn. Person <laughs> um, yeah, she just has so much energy and like, and and like life in her, and she's like one of the biggest jokesters I know. She's just constantly making jokes and like trying to get under people's skin just for the humor of it. Oh, that's um, great. I wish I could be there to see your mom. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. Me, you'd me love being it. Vietnamese, oh, yeah. Me being Vietnamese Cambodian, that's a, that's a, that's a national pastime. It's a, <laughs> roasting family members and friends. You, you guys <laughs> two peas in a pod. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. I think that the stubbornness, I mean, my mom has that too. There's a survival, there's a resilience, especially oh, from yeah. our parents coming from uh from war and from state sanctioned violence and and for your mom and my family and your family to survive those experiences there's something that keeps you going and i mean for your mom to not give up after like nearly a nearly a year and to see her progress is very beautiful and so damn inspiring so i'm glad that it's been kind of inheriting being passed down to you so uh so which will transition back to the music now that you are in your mid-20s and you're starting to (laughs) perform create music write songs what has how have all these experiences including you know your asian american identity your experiences with your mom your your relationship with your the rest of your family and where how in that how and how has that in a way deepened the way you create write and perform your music oh man (laughs) i think uh well i think with my mom it's my whole my whole experience with with learning how to deal with all of that and 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 learning how to be compassionate in spite of all the all the pain that we had been through, or it's especially because of all the pain we had been through, and oh, you just took a snapshot. Cool. Yes, uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, Random and moment like, there. <laughs> and just and just grappling with that whole situation. Uh, I think that just really kind of well, a like grew me up just taught taught me the, the things that I value or, or or taught taught me values in general and, and taught me about mortality and, and love and um and sacrifice and, and duty and and family. Uh and it it I think just like really heightened my emotional maturity and, and ability to be right or be be like perceptive of not just the people around me, but myself and, and how I was doing. And I think those are huge components of the music that I make and, and the songs that I write. Um, and coming to kind of like grasp who I am in this world and what I want. Uh, and, and I don't know what, what I, what I, what I find important. Um, so I think the whole the whole the whole thing has definitely made me grow up a lot. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, um, in with your music now that you're creating, 
how would you describe your music? And <laughs> I know that you have a nickname that you, I would rather have you share that, but how would you describe your music in your own words? Uh, what's my nickname? I'm at a loss right now. I can't remember. You said something that you connected your music as if it's like Frank Ocean meets. Oh, yeah. I want to yes. make I want to make music as though uh, Frank Ocean, uh, David Bowie, and Bruce Lee had a baby. <laughs> I want to make damn. the music that that baby would make. That oh. is very deep. <laughs> so, <laughs> so why were those three people very important to? the way you create music um so i guess those three are really important because um well a they're all pioneers uh and and i think a lot of a lot of the excellence that they showed they showed in like adding to adding to the the culture or the the practice that they were involved in so whether it was bruce lee in the martial arts or uh david bowie and Frank Ocean in um, in music, a lot of the excellence that they showed in their respective crafts kind of came from a uh, like a, a like a like this like desperation to like understand themselves and to be to be more fully themselves and actualize themselves. Mm. Um, and they all are kind of people that really don't have boundaries. Um, and and really kind of throw genre out the window and and just try and make things that really resonate with themselves um mm. and and do so often like almost always actually uh like at the expense of like um you know like the status quo um and and i think like for me i just love each of them like each of the three of those as performers uh because they're so fluid and and kind of like understanding themselves um and also understanding the cultures that they're in and and making work uh that they they all truly love um that also really is able to not not only resonate with the culture but evolve it mm. um, and and so yeah i i like and then not to mention i just love all of their work too uh like the work itself is just amazing yeah. um, so i guess oh go, oh, go ahead. ahead yeah so and also which is, I, I love what you just said. I think it's so profound. And what um, what music, what uh, instruments do you play? And also how you've only been performing maybe just a less than a handful of times so far. So how has the idea of performing live and recording in a studio uh, been like for you? Because um, they're two very separate entities. Um, yeah, uh, they're totally different because when I... When I perform in the studio, well, uh, the studio being my bedroom or my living room or wherever, wherever I'm living at the at that time, uh, when I'm performing in in my living room uh, or in my bedroom, uh, I have complete control. You know, uh, I don't have to be self conscious really. Um, if if I don't like the way I sang something, I could sing it again. Mm. If I'm freestyling and I don't like one of the phrases or sentences that I that I said, I can always replace it. I can rewrite it. Uh, I have infinite time to like put things together and think about stuff and stew about it and figure out what what works and what doesn't. Um, and and I think I see all those as like really beautiful strengths of uh, recording in 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 your own studio. Mm -hmm. um, whereas when I'm performing, uh, I have no control over really like anything uh i mean yeah i have a little bit of control over what i play or what what songs i choose to play and how i choose to sing them but oftentimes you don't have as much control over that as you'd want to sometimes your voice just feels a certain way that day and you got to roll with it uh i don't have really control over how the crowd reacts uh i don't have control over the space that i'm in um i don't have control over the sound setup uh and even if i'm like my own sound guy I, I really only have limited control over all that um and and like uh so i think when i perform uh and the, when i perform the beauty of performing is that you have so so much less control uh and that things are bound to kind of go uh 
not according to plan. Yeah. Um, and you just have to roll with it. And that's why it's beautiful and fun. That's, that's what's so intoxicating about performing is that, that you, you expect for things to go, um, to go wrong and you kind of roll with it. And then you realize that what had just gone wrong was actually something that was, that went perfectly. And it was a blessing because it turned into something that was better than you could have planned. Um, and I think like for me, performing is, uh, is, is the stakes feel so high because you have so little control. And I think because of those stakes, it, it makes me, it makes me perform at like a level that that's just higher. Uh, it's like it's just the right amount of stress that I just feel really locked into the moment and really able to like get fully into into the songs and uh, really like invest myself emotionally. Like every time every time I perform live, there's at least one point in the performance where I just like I'm on the verge of tears because mm. I just feel so like <laughs> I feel I feel so emotionally invested in in whether it was something I said or or I I saw something that like moved me uh or or i i i just like i don't know had like had a thought that crossed my mind um and and yeah for some reason when i perform i just get really get into my feelings um and i i get that too while i'm in the studio sometimes but definitely not as reliably uh and oftentimes like those strengths that i named uh for like being in the studio the the amount of control you have Oftentimes that's a weakness because uh, when you have when when you have unlimited time to like rewrite something or retake something or think about something until you can make it better than whatever it was that you made, uh, that's kind of when you get paralyzed and stuck in in the decision making process, and that that's oftentimes when you uh, kind of like become really unproductive because you're you can't move forward because you keep thinking, oh, there's something I could have done better. Whereas with performance, there's none of that. You just, you just have to accept whatever you did and just move on, move on with it. And yeah. that's why I like both, like I, I love both so much because they're just so different. Yeah. And also before we wrap up, do you have any future projects that you're working on at the moment? And I know that you're also working on your social media presence. I know that social media is not a big thing for you, but I know that there are people that would want to see you perform or, um, so yeah, I was wondering, uh, what projects do you have coming up and also do you have anything where people can follow you? Um, I, uh, I have an Instagram, uh, if, if you want to follow it, it's at E T Z K W N G. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, uh, in regards to uh, future projects, I'm. I was working on an EP for a while uh, with with my duo partner, um, and and we have like a good seven or eight songs, um, and I. I. Uh, might release those, uh, but honestly, I've kind of just been. Uh, I've kind of just been trying to reset and figure out what I want to release and how how I want to proceed with uh what what brand i i have for myself in the world and, and what that looks like mm. um and so yeah i mean i'm always working on stuff i'm literally constantly working on stuff um as for releases there's nothing official right now on the horizon um but there's definitely going to be something soon uh i, I would, hope so i would just keep track of uh i, I would i would follow myself on instagram and just kind of keep track of what i'm doing and I don't know. I can be kind of capricious in that way. Uh, I'll just put something out uh, when when it feels right to put it out. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I also hope that you do continue uh, working on uh, your upcoming projects and uh, perform uh, for live shows. I know that you're looking to do that very soon. So yeah, follow. That's Corin on Instagram. And I just thought to wrap up, I want to say that I'm very, very honored for you to be here on this show and to share your experiences, you know, being a oh, musician dad. and also really being brave and uh and very thoughtful about your experiences 
going back uh, to your um, mom and how challenging and difficult, but how so how the be the beautiful lessons you've learned along the way and 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 how uh, cerebral you've been and thinking about all a lot of uh, those experiences. So I'm very thankful to have you share them. And yeah, I think that's really just nothing short of beautiful. I can tell you that I'm in my feels right now. So yeah, thank, thank you so much, man. Thank you for having me on, on, uh, on your podcast. This has been really fun yes. uh, and definitely thought provoking for me. I mean, you asked me a lot of stuff that uh, I've never been asked before. So a- anything that you can, anything that you can do to help me process my whole fucking situation that that <laughs> that's helpful for me and i'm really grateful for that i will say that ada was asking me uh, the other day she was like i was wondering if uh, escrow might be available for storytelling i said you know oh, oh i'm sure oh, he will yeah. well, i'm sure he will eventually I- i'm I- very very sure you will i already told her that that yeah I-, I know i can't be speaking for you like that but i'm like oh yeah i think you're ready she, i think I, you're have a lot. I totally i have to email her back you reminded me i totally <laughs> forgot she yeah i uh i don't know if i'm gonna I don't know if I'm ready yet. Uh, oh, I think you will be. Oh, you uh, you'd be surprised. Data, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I think she said it was in December or something like that. But uh, yeah, but the truth is, um, uh, but the truth is, I'm. You've already, you know, shared something that's so profound, and I'm glad that I have the honor to hear this and uh, for you to share this with um, our folks. So yeah, thank yeah. you so much. I just want, I just want people to, to really love their parents. And I think that's yeah. really important. Word and word. I can't tell you how, you know, how much I've grown from my experiences, the way you've shared your growth in the last seven and a half years that we've both been, you know, working to, uh, working to accept and to embrace this role and um you know watching over our parents and also you know there's comes a time where we will still be dealing with that um down the road and and i think that for us to uh come so close we've learned to appreciate we've learned to better ourselves and we've learned to uh deepen our relationships with our parents and with our family members, uh, despite the struggles, despite the mistakes, trials and errors that we've had to go through. So I'm really glad to have that talk with you. And uh, yes, until next time, we shall talk again. But thank you so much, that's Corn. Hey, thank you, man. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.